Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. In this episode, we'll discuss the 10th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Lectionary 18 or Proper 13, which this year falls on August 6th. We have two content notes for you this episode. We talk about food a lot throughout this episode, and then also talk about supersessionism and anti-Semitism briefly for the second reading. And this week, we are also saying a very special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. And we are so grateful for your support and mm-hmm. how you allow us to keep making this podcast. So a big thank you to Bridget Watley, Pace Warfield, Aaron Holmgren, Lowell Chilton, Paul Bennett, Eric L. Bodenstab, and Andrew Walker. Thank you all. You're wonderful. Yes, y'all are amazing. If you want your name on that list, we want to put your name on that list. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash nerds at church and sign up to be our Patreon. It starts at just $5 a month and it helps us be sustainable as a podcast and is helping us grow and work on stuff for our new seasons that are coming up and our new formats that we'll be revealing with time. Absolutely. Also, check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. So this week, because so many of our readings are focusing on food, we thought we would talk about the biblical diet. What did the ancient Israelites eat? Mm-hmm. So many of us, myself included, our immediate thought when it comes to biblical diet is kosher, because that is what we know of the most from the food practices of many Jewish people. So I'm going to do a real quick overview of what kosher dietary practices are. And some of the kosher dietary practices trace all the way back to biblical times, and some adjustments and tweaks and kind of more in-depth guidelines have come about since the actual Bible was written. So kosher in Hebrew actually means fit. So it is the food that is fit for Jewish consumption. The very basics of what counts as kosher, and we'll link to the website that I got this from, and they have a lot more kind of detailed stuff if you want to dive into what is kosher and what isn't and how you know and all of that stuff. But certain species of animals are permitted for consumption. And so one of the ways you know if it is kosher or if it's not, if it has hooves, then like cloven hooves, like pork, pigs, it is not kosher. And so that is one of the ways that you can easily separate out kosher or not kosher, which is mostly these days is pigs or not pigs. Pigs are not kosher, but cows, for example, are kosher. And then also shellfish are not kosher because the only fish that are kosher have to have fins and scales. And there's a lot more that has come up since then of like, what are the particularities of how you count that and like removing the scales with the skin intact and stuff. But the basic, basic, basic. So this is not the rules that all people follow. This is just kind of an overview. So also their eggs and milk. So any animal that is kosher, their eggs and milk would fall into what is 
potentially kosher as well. And so that includes things like cheese or dairy products, which have to be from a kosher animal, and they can only have kosher ingredients. So I recently watched a TikTok that was debating whether or not the cheese that makes up the moon, if the moon were really made of cheese, would be kosher. Mostly they landed on because the moon predates rabbis or mashkiach, who are the Jewish supervisors who oversee food processing to ensure that it is kosher, the cheese that would make up the moon would not be able to be proven to be kosher, which is a requirement of kosher, like that a rabbi or mashkiach has to be present to confirm. So it can't be verified that way. And then it's unclear if it counts as falling directly from heaven because that would be the other way to make sure it's kosher. So it's debatable, but the person whose TikTok I was watching leaned towards probably not kosher. Though things falling from the sky, things falling from heaven, things out in outer space, that is a new debate that I think we are on the cutting edge of that debate right now, (laughs) if those count. But in general, the cheese, again, has particular requirements, and cheese and meat, and all kosher food, have to be confirmed as kosher. So since even small traces of non-kosher substances can render a food not kosher, all processed foods and eating establishments require certification by either a reliable rabbi or kashrut supervision agencies. So the Orthodox Union has the like biggest one today, but there are a variety of them. If it just has the letter K, I think that is one that is pretty common, but folks who are Orthodox in particular will not count that. That's not like a high enough standard for them. So if you want to check this out, I think it's really fun to next time you get any packaged food from the grocery store or anything, look on the label. And if you see like a U with a circle, aka an O around it. That's the symbol for the Orthodox Union, which has given its stamp of approval that it's kosher. But there are a variety of different organizations that do that. So to kind of look, and sometimes it'll say if it's Perev or not, and sometimes it'll say dairy or meat or that sort of a thing. But it's really cool to see what food today is kosher and would count as kosher. Also, one of the things that kosher eating is probably most known for is that meat and milk are never combined. So if you have a kosher kitchen, there are a variety of ways to do that. Some people have two separate kitchens, one for meat and one for milk. But in general, definitely separate utensils are used for each and there's a waiting period between eating meat and eating dairy products or the reverse. Also, the meat itself not only must come from specific kosher animals, but the animals must be slaughtered in a specific and painless manner, which is known as shekita. And certain parts of the animal, including like blood, for example, must be removed. Also, I think there's a thing in the Bible of like the hip socket doesn't get eaten because that's where the mysterious being struck Jacob, aka Israel, after wrestling with him. And then most fruits, vegetables, and grains are basically always kosher as long as they are insect-free because insects are animals, and so that's a whole different thing. Wine and grape juice must be certified kosher. There's 
one of the stories I heard about this is like if you're drinking wine with someone because there's also in a hope for maintaining the culture and the religion there has historically been and in different denominations of Judaism is more or less still the case intermarriage and interreligious marriage is not necessarily a good thing and so wine in particular you need to be kosher at least one of the stories is that then you're drinking wine around people who if wine decreases your inhibitions and you might like start flirting with somebody you're flirting with someone else who is also jewish presumably which i think is just an interesting like way of thinking about things And so in addition to just the generic fruits, vegetables, and grains basically always being kosher, Parev products, which I had learned as Parv, but it is spelled differently than I learned it. So I'm doing my best to pronounce how it's spelled. Contain neither meat nor milk slash respective derivatives, dairy products. They include foods such as kosher fish, which have as I mentioned, fins and scales. There is something about fish not being able to be eaten with meat, but there's not like the time difference that dairy and meat have. So a lot of times for a meat meal, fish might be the first course. And then as long as it's a different course, you're fine. Eggs from permitted kosher birds, grains, produce, and other edible vegetation all would count within that. So they can be eaten whether you're having a dairy meal or a meat meal. Those are like the big picture kind of things. And then as like I kind of alluded to a couple times, the basics are there. And then there's been a lot of discussion by rabbis and others since these kind of initial rules were established of like, okay, does this count? Does this count? And that's where like having someone who's a rabbi or a verified person to confirm that the whole process is kosher is important. That's where having the labels is important, that sort of thing. So it can get much more complicated for those of us who are not Jewish. A reminder that our job is not to regulate what Jewish people eat. This is just about learning. And so I definitely highly recommend checking out labels for things that you buy at the grocery store and stuff to see if you can find yeah. out if it if you can figure out if it is kosher or not and what kind of kosher whether it's dairy or meat or neither I just think that that's fun and once you start looking then you kind of notice it everywhere because a lot of places are really intentional about doing that because it's not that hard to make sure that your food is kosher and therefore make sure that your food is edible and accessible to Jewish people yeah Also, we're not getting into halal food, but my understanding is that most kosher food is halal. Not all halal food is kosher. So that's just an extra thing for accessibility in terms of folks who are Muslim. Yeah. So more specifically, aside from kosher and not kosher, what did the ancient Israelites eat? Well, there is a book called Not Bread Alone, Uses of Food in the Old Testament by Nathan MacDonald. And chapter two is all about exactly this. What was the Israelite diet like? Mm -hmm. Now, the traditional view of the Israelite diet was that it was sort of barely adequate and mostly consisted of a handful of grains and you only got to eat meat for major religious celebrations. And this was especially true when they were a nomadic people, a nomadic 
diet does not tend to be great because you're wandering around and you can't really grow crops. And so that part of their history probably did not include a really great diet. Mm -hmm. But more recent archaeological findings in the last few decades have shown that the diet was more varied and satisfying than previously thought with a similar calorie count to the modern day diets found in that same region. Which is to say, we are not comparing the ancient Israelites' diet to the diet of a modern American person, because the American diet is a whole different kettle of fish, bread, <laughs> meat, and dairy, fried foods. cheeseburgers. Yeah. yeah. So as for the not nomadic times of the Israelites, which is to say primarily, I think, during the monarchy, this book seems to be covering, we have some crop records for their cereal grains, and then you would factor into those records the spoilage rate and keeping seed for the following season to plant, and then you'd compare those amounts against the local human population, and cereal grains in particular were apparently not regularly exported from from this region, so you can do a, a fairly simple comparison for how much a single person would wind up eating. Mm -hmm. And then also the other two major parts of the diet were the wine and the oil. And we do have some wine and oil crop and export records because both of these were actually exported regularly from Israel to other parts of the region. And also we have some ability to estimate the number of cattle needed for plowing the fields that they grew all of these crops in, mm -hmm. the number of cattle you'd need to be able to plow the fields. And then you factor in how many cattle would be needed to keep that population stable due to sickness and aging and so on. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as the cattle aged, once they could no longer help plow, they would be killed and butchered and eaten. And so we also have some archaeological remains that show us the pattern of animal husbandry followed in the area, although these estimates are probably less reliable than our ability to estimate the human population numbers. Mm -hmm because we're better at estimating humans, frankly. We have more experience. And that can give us estimates both of meat and milk and how often both meat and milk would have factored into the diet. Hmm. So most of the calories in your average ancient Israelites diet during the monarchy would have come from cereal grains, and then those would be supplemented mostly by legumes, which is to say beans. And then, like I said earlier, the other two major components of the diet would have been wine, which would have been the main beverage, and oil, which would have been used with the grains for baking and with veggies or meat for cooking. And when it comes to grain, generally speaking, they preferred wheat to barley. Wheat bread was a higher mm. quality than barley bread. Mm. So if you had a little more money, you'd eat wheat bread. If you had a little less, you'd eat barley. Nice. They surveyed one village in ancient Israel that was archaeologically excavated, and that village of an estimate of 100 people was estimated to keep about 22 cattle and 130 sheep or goats. It's kind of hard to tell the difference between the sheep and the goats when it comes to archaeological finds, mm. as you might imagine. The skeletons are somewhat similar. That's actually a very fascinating fact, given some biblical perspectives on sheep and goats. Yeah, I would imagine. And so they would guess that because of the number of cattle and sheep and goats versus the number of people, you can eventually estimate that there would have been about a half liter of milk per person per day hmm. for their diet uh, and about two thirds of a pound of meat per person per week. 
the initial numbers were actually all per person per day, but in order to get the meat to a point where we would understand the numbers, I had <laughs> to make it per week. And I guess I'm supposing that two thirds of a pound of meat per week would estimate out to about either two meals that contained meat per week, mm. or maybe one meat meal, and then also a few soups throughout the week with meat broth, mm. as a guess. But that's just me making things up because they didn't actually go into how that probably would have worked out in your diet. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And these estimates assume that the meat wasn't being exported on a regular basis. We don't really have records for that. But also, while it was hard to keep meat fresh in the ancient world, it was not impossible that some livestock would have been exported or used for trade. So it's possible that the meat amount would have been actually a little lower than this guess mm -hmm. per person. But the main livestock kept for meat in ancient Israel were cows, sheep, goats, and yes, pigs. Because while the Jewish folks didn't actually eat them, th there was always a non-Jewish population in ancient Israel. And also, they frankly just make really excellent garbage disposals <laughs> to have around. And so that is they true. are a useful animal to keep. Yeah. And certainly we have examples of pigs in the Bible with like yeah. the legion. They show up. Right? Like the demon that is the legion. And yeah. in that case... And the prodigal son raising them yep. while out and about. And in particularly the case of legion, that is frequently connected to the Roman occupation, right? Sure. Both in military language, but then also in having so many pigs that are not going to be consumed by the Jewish people. But in fact, Romans probably would have no problem consuming them. Yeah. And also fish were eaten more often than we had expected earlier. Again, more recent archaeological finds are giving us more evidence for lots of fish remains in the, mm -hmm. the area from the time of the monarchy. We just keep finding more fish than we expect to find. And this includes fish that would have been brought from the Nile or from the Red Sea, which means fairly impressive trade routes mm -hmm. would have been involved to get those fish that far. Yeah. So the fish definitely were a larger part of the ancient diet than we expected. Yes. From a modern nutritional standpoint, the most major concern that we'd have with this ancient Mediterranean diet would have been the necessary vitamin C amounts. How do you get the necessary mm. vitamin C? Because there aren't really a lot of these foods that naturally contain a lot of vitamin C. Mm. No we're a little fuzzy on that part, but it was probably supplemented with wild greens. And also there were various fruits grown in the Area. The Bible talks about figs all the time, mm -hmm. but not all of those fruits contained a lot of vitamin C either. And, you know, lemons and oranges were definitely not there in ancient times. So we're still a little concerned about how that would have worked out so that people didn't get scurvy. But there were some wild greens that were not necessarily grown as crops that people could have eaten that would have helped. Mm -hmm. And there was one interesting note that I found that said that the comments about the land flowing with milk and honey, that description of ancient Israel, you'll note that people who describe ancient Israel as the land flowing with milk and honey are always people who are not currently living in that <laughs> land at the time. So that might be less accurate and more like Fievel singing about the no cats in America. Oh. <laughs> sort of a hopeful vision kind of thing. I was thinking like a different way of saying the grass is always greener on the other side. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Interesting. Interesting. So as you can imagine, a lot of this comes from both biblical and archaeological information. And there are a few different biblical passages that we wanted to kind of point towards that give a sense of the ancient biblical diet. One thing I will say is, and we 
talked about this in our episode on Passover, but there are really clear examples of what sorts of things were available in terms of what could be procured for a Passover dinner. That would be both in terms of lamb that you're eating, but also the bitter herbs and salt water and fruit and like all of those things that tend to be on a plate at a Seder dinner. Just a reminder that the Seder dinners of today are not the same as the Seder dinners of 2000 plus years ago. So don't assume that they are. And also remember, if you're not Jewish, you shouldn't be putting on your own Seder. But if you are invited to one, then lucky you because those are awesome. Also, another passage is in the book of Daniel, the first chapter, verses 8 through 16, when they are taken into exile, Daniel and his buddies only drink vegetables and water so that they are not considered ritually impure. So this is like a way of making sure that they are keeping kosher. And there's a whole thing about that. And then they end up being in good health, even without eating the food that the king was trying to feed them. And so the king's like, okay, fine. You can just eat veggies and drinking water and that's fine. Yeah. And also the Nathan McDonald book brought up the Bible verse from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 17, which says, better is a dinner of vegetables where love is than a fatted ox and hatred with it, which does not tell us that the ancient biblical people had a very high view of vegetables, but Mm -hmm. it does tell us that there's more to food than the nutritional value as well. Yes. And in Acts chapter 10, which we hear a lot various parts of it. That is the time when Peter receives this vision from God of a sheet being brought down and God challenging Peter and opening Peter up to thinking about food as instead of clean and unclean, that all food comes from God. And so is edible. And that's part of God breaking open Peter's understanding of who's inside the community of faith and who's outside and saying, no, everyone is welcome to be a part of this community of faith. So that has to do with like kosher, unkosher, clean, unclean dietary stuff at that time, but also is an illustration for a larger conversation about people and community and belonging. But I wanted to like throw that out there too. Yeah. And then pop culture. Yes. So pop culture and biblical diets don't really overlap a lot. Doctor Who doesn't really go places and talk about what they're eating very much when it's historical (laughs) places. I actually think that that would be really cool if they did. And they like, because sometimes they like get into things. I think Marcia as a companion was one of the ones who kind of first pushed that of like. More noticing the historical details that are weird to her, that kind of thing. Yeah. I suppose the time that they encountered vampires in Venice, they did talk about what they were eating then, but you know, that was kind of unusual. So (laughs) yeah. That was, that, was, that was a little different. But like Martha started to get at like, hello, they are going to think that I am enslaved to you or that sort of a thing. And so right. they didn't really get at it. I think it would be cool to like toss in more of that information, but it also takes more research and that sort of thing. But Madeline Lengel's Time Quartet series does get a bit more into what happens in... Biblical Times, her book, Many Waters, the twins go back in time to basically Noah's time while building the ark. And again, 
it's been forever since I read that book. Again, it's not like we get a lot about the food, but it's trying to get into what life was like in that time and presuming that, you know, Nephilim and Seraphim and all of those many-eyed creatures still existed. Sure. Also, speaking of fiction and historical accuracy, while we do love the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat and the song in that musical that is set in a French bistro is very entertaining. Ancient Israel did not actually have French bistros. We apologize if this isn't a surprise to anyone (laughs) listening to the podcast and please accept our condolences. So, Also, Prince of Egypt is a fantastic cartoon animated movie. It's one of the better ones in terms of biblical storytelling, but again, doesn't get a ton into what is being eaten. It's not the main thing, even though decreasing rations was part of what the Egyptians were doing to the Hebrew people. But yeah, I have been once again re-scandalized with the knowledge that Kay has not seen Prince of Egypt. So (laughs) I'm getting there. If you want us to do a movie commentary on the Prince of Egypt, I'm voting for it because (laughs) I think it would be fun. We've also had conversations about the many things you haven't seen. It's true. It's true. But this is one of the things that you haven't. So I get to talk about it. Sure. Also, I think it would be a cool thing for us to do a movie commentary on. Speaking of movie commentaries, we did actually recently record a movie commentary for Four Weddings and a Funeral, but we will be waiting until the WGA SAG strike has finished until we release it. Yes. But it was very fun. Yes, we did record it. The guidelines that we have to make sure that we're not crossing picket lines because we support striking workers and we think everybody deserves better compensation except for CEOs who deserve probably less compensation. But because we are supporting that, we are not promoting struck companies. So doing a movie commentary for a movie that's on a streaming service when the streaming services are the struck companies goes against our values. So continue to put pressure on the CEOs and the streaming services to actually show up and bargain in good faith with WGA and SAG-AFTRA so that we can release our (laughs) movie commentary, but also so that, more importantly, those writers and actors can be compensated and can pay their bills and afford their rent and get compensated for the important work that we all appreciate and delight in and are entertained by. Yeah. And on that note, the one thing I will say regarding that movie that I think we both came out thinking was that, wow, the 90s were a very weird time (laughs) in so many ways. (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's like a whole different universe. Yeah. Yeah. It really, really is. Yeah. So that's what we've got for biblical diets. It is, you know, complicated and not so complicated, but we would love to hear from you if you have ever tried to or followed kosher eating, or if you remember when ancient eating practices came up in pop culture. Do you remember more than we do? Because we don't remember. And that's part of why that section was so short. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but let us know what you think and yeah. And now as we dive into our readings, our first reading is Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 through 5. God invites the people to join freely in both feast and community. Fun fact, 
this was part of my first reading for my ordination service. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of collective good. This is opening up this feast and the space for food and drink and joy to be for everyone. And in case you can't tell, I've been on TikTok a lot lately, but bartering was a lie. Somebody on TikTok was talking about it that like actually they've done studies and people say that money came from bartering as a replacement for bartering. And the reality is that bartering for the most part wasn't commonplace. People just shared what they had in community and had a communal sense of ownership of stuff. And it wasn't unless you were kind of a stranger or more distant that there was some bartering and trading of like goods slash services for stuff. Or in a place where money already existed and there wasn't any money, then they might switch to bartering. So I thought that was interesting that like when we think about the collective good and all of that stuff, like when we get far enough back, it wasn't bartering. It was just a shared common good and people doing the work of supporting the community together. So that was really cool. Cool information. And then in verse one, we read, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And it reminded me of the bakery that's like a block away on the corner. Is It's a Jewish bakery called Matzi in, here in Baltimore. And they do pay what you can. So you can go and buy a loaf of bread. And if you have five bucks and need two loaves of bread, then they'll give you two loaves of bread for five bucks. But the goal is that everyone be able to come to the waters, to come and receive food and drink as they need it, which I think is awesome. And I wish we had more of that sort of an economic model, which is like becoming more popular, but is a tricky one. It's risky. And mutual aid. So you have to have like some courage to take that risk and some like money just to be safe. Sure. And then in verse two, we read, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Okay, so as much as the Bible is offering good general advice here, it also doesn't have to be 100% accurate all the time. (laughs) Like not everything that you eat has to be good and rich food that also satisfies. You can also sometimes have other things. If you want to have some silliness in your life and you want to go buy an ice planet at the spaceport (laughs) like River Tam did in Firefly, that's okay too. Ice planets are a sometimes food and that means sometimes you can have them. So It's true. It's true. We here at Nerds at Church, while we will tell you about the biblical diet, are not prescribing it because... A, diets suck and are awful and terrible. But well, B, it's not that kind of diet, Emily. Well, that too. But also, yes. fat is best. Yes. It is most important that you are able to eat food and get the food in the body to do the things of living. Although, admittedly, eating a nice planet is a little more difficult than eating some other foods. But I mean, that's true. Ice but still, sometimes a challenge is good for you. difficult. Yes. <laughs> it reminded me of snowballs. So I'm like, now I want to go get a snowball here in Baltimore, which is a specific Baltimore treat. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Also, I just finished rewatching Firefly. So that nice. was like perfect timing. Well done. 
And then in verse 3, we read, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So this, it's just important to point out that covenants and contracts are not the same thing. Covenants are things where two people come together and have ways of repairing and reconnecting when they are broken, when people mess up, all of that stuff. Contracts, at least these days, are ways for people with power and powerful lawyers to screw over everybody else. So another shout out to the WGA SAG-AFTRA strikers that we support you and we want a just and generous new contract for you all that helps you all to live and not only survive, but thrive in your lives. Yeah. And then in verse four, we read, see, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And this verse made me think that the Israelite Messiah concept of a prophet mixed with a leader sounds a little bit like it might be an inspiration for, or at least related to, Plato's concept from ancient Greece of a philosopher king, which is a philosopher who also leads and who uses philosophy to inform their leadership. Hmm. So... Kind of like we talked about Solomon, though. Something like that, yes. As we learned, I believe, last week. Solomon is not all he's cracked up to be. Necessarily, yeah. And then our next reading for this episode is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul clearly explains that the Jewish people are still and always will be the beloved children of God, and all their covenants with God are still in effect. So one of the themes in this passage is supersessionism bad. Supersessionism is the idea that Christians have come and superseded, taken over for the Jewish people as the chosen people of God. That's bad. That's wrong. That's anti-Semitic, in fact. Absolutely. God chose the Jewish people, and nothing changes that, period. So as we jump into the verses, in verse 1, we read, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. And this kind of reminds me of a running, I don't know that joke is the right word, but it's a running thing in many of Robert Heinlein's novels of people quoting Lewis Carroll's poem, The Hunting of the Snark, to each other by saying, what I tell you three times is true, or just the shorter version of I tell you three times, which is a way for them to say to each other that they realize that what they're saying is unlikely or sounds difficult to believe, but they are genuinely being serious and they need to skip the I don't believe you stage of the conversation because there are important things to do and perhaps a crunched timeline. Hmm. And so this is sort of an ongoing thing. And it kind of reminded me of Paul saying, I'm not lying, by the way, (laughs) which is kind of a weird thing to put into the middle of your letter to another church, but okay. But this only works with people who both know and trust each other, of course. So yeah, that's fascinating. I thought you were going to go with the like, saying something three times helps people remember it and so it's like i'm just gonna pretend it does yes i don't know if lewis carroll like picked that up from somewhere or what but the poem is very silly so i appreciate that they use a very silly poem to make a important point agreed and then in verse two we read i have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart and so i'm in the middle of watching dead to me on i think netflix or something but it has major Jen Harding, who is Christina Applegate's character and the main character, energy from the first season where it starts out and she's in the process of grieving because her husband was killed by a hit and run. And Mm -hmm. so it's just like, there's so much like sorrow and anguish and then thing after thing keeps happening. And of course it's a Netflix show. So every 
episode ends on a cliffhanger so it's set up to binge watch but yeah just like so much sorrow and unceasing anguish for jen she doesn't handle it particularly well which doesn't help yeah and then in verse four we read they are israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises and the list actually continues after that Mm -hmm. but basically what i'm getting from this verse is that it's like the israelites are the good non-dystopian version of the people of the capital in the hunger games universe like these are the the favored folks these are the folks who for whom life is good Hmm. interesting also, the ancient Israelites definitely would have been against the Hunger Games, but yes. for so many reasons. But I just had to take a minute for my brain to wrap around you comparing them to the capital in the Hunger Games. I, well, I was trying to think of, like, favored people in different mm. universes, and that was the first thing that popped yeah. into my head. Because usually the favor isn't quite that obvious. Yeah, that's true. But, like, instead of, you know doing the hunger games and starving and oppressing all of the districts they're like helping and supporting the districts sure. right yeah okay exactly the good non-dystopian version yeah gotcha okay i just needed to clarify because uh-huh. oh, sure. that could have gotten lots of ways and then in verse five we read to them belong the patriarchs and from them according to the flesh comes the messiah who is over all god blessed forever amen okay they can have the patriarchs but dibs on the matriarchs and the non-binary and trans ancestors because those are ones that I care more <laughs> about anyway. And, you know, we do so much like assuming of cisgender heteronormativity in history and in scripture that like, I want the rest of them. I want the non-patriarch. <laughs> Absolutely. And then our final passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 14 verses 13 through 21. After trying to get a break from the crowds, Jesus has compassion on them and provides healing before sending the disciples to feed over 5,000 people. So one of the themes is potlucks. Potlucks (laughs) basically always work like this. Like there's not enough and but like everybody contributes a little bit and then there's like a bazillion way more than anybody could imagine all sorts of leftovers usually i chalk that up to the enneagram twos among us so like definitely make friends who are twos but yeah (laughs) yeah enneagram twos potlucks are just great i love potlucks they're also very queer so yay potlucks you never know who may be hiding a casserole under their coat or in their bag or you know casseroles can come from anywhere really it's true it's true yeah and then as we dive into the verses in verse 13 we read now when jesus heard this he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself but when the crowds heard it they followed him on foot from the town and in dead to me somebody was talking about like jesus never took a day off and i was like that's not true the devil might not rest but jesus does or at least tries to yes yeah. Jesus is pretty much constantly in search of a day off. <laughs> yeah. God took a day off. Yeah. Please don't let anybody tell you that you should not rest. Yeah. Oh. The devil is not the model that we want right. for exactly. our lives. Yeah. Let's let's generally not use the devil as our life god. Yeah. And then in verse 15a, we read, When it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus. Oh, so the disciples weren't with him on the boat so that means that they probably were with the crowds the whole day or maybe they were following the crowds but like probably they were with the crowds right because if a crowd is following a guy on a boat along the shore his disciples are probably going to be just as mobbed as jesus was the whole time and while jesus managed to get a break by literally running into the sea (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) The disciples were having to be social the whole time. And so no wonder they want him to tell these folks to go away and buy food and finally give them a break too, right? I wonder how many of them were introverts. You definitely described them just now as all introverts. And I was like, I feel that. They might not have been. A few of them might have... Well, yes, a, a few of them might have been introverts, but like even extroverts get tired of being surrounded by a crowd for an entire day and constantly being talked to and pulled at and asked for things and asked questions and stuff like that. Like even extroverts need a break too. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of Havelock Vatanari in the Discworld books by Terry Pratchett, who will eventually become the guy who runs the city of Ankh-Morpork, Pork, but starts out as a lonely introverted member of the Assassin's Guild with no friends. And as you bump into Vatanari in the various books in his more current day situation, he constantly wants some time away from all of the people who are demanding things from him and just wants to like be able to sit quietly in a room alone for five minutes. And there is just stuff that is constantly coming at him because that's what happens when you run a city because you're literally the only competent person available to do so. And so he's regularly disappointed that way much like Mm. jesus was yeah and then in verse 16 jesus responds to the disciples and says they need not go away you give them something to eat clear command give them something to eat that that seems like a pretty clear instruction from jesus maybe instead of you know always increasing pentagon funding when they can't even pass an audit we should like spend that money on giving people something to eat or at the very least like let's get some lembas bread to them Hmm? maybe yeah. Just a little Lembus. <laughs> oh, you just want to be able to share the Lembus bread. It's true. <laughs> yeah. And then in verse 20, we read, And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. Okay, so there was a crowd of 5,000 people. And this crowd oh, of 5,000 people... It was people, only 5,000 men. Not yes, counting 5, the women men and plus children everybody and else. non-binary people. So who knows how many thousand people? Lots of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. All of these people apparently forgot to bring food with them for themselves. I mean, we don't know that. Well, that's what they claim. Okay. And that they didn't have any food. And then they were following Jesus around for at least a day, actually probably like a couple of days. So maybe they had already eaten the food they had with them is basically the implication here. Yeah. And these folks who did not think to bring more food with themselves and who have been following Jesus constantly for a couple of days just happen to come up with 12 extra empty bushel baskets with no warning? Like, where did the baskets come from? Did Jesus multiply baskets too? Was there a miracle of baskets? I mean, maybe. This part of the story is not explained to us. Maybe, or it's possible that the baskets had other things in them or used to have food in them. It's not explained to us. Yeah, we don't know where they came from. Yeah, it's true, true. And now, for our yummiest segment, let's make a Muppets musical. <laughs> Emily, do you have thoughts on casting Muppets for these readings? Okay, obviously the the easiest is like a Swedish chef making all of the foods, but I could see the Swedish chef as Jesus in this, being like, <laughs> no, you feed them. And then like, Fozzie Bear definitely is like, all right, let's go, people. And like, just... <laughs> like being super hospitable and passing around the food and all of that stuff so that's that's my like how that story goes yes so i was reading this story and i noticed the story of the feeding of the five thousand and or plus several other thousand people that story is 
the only miracle story in the Gospels besides the resurrection that shows up in all four of the Gospels, right? That's how important this story is. Mm -hmm. And in this version, at least, it says that there are five loaves and two fish, but it never actually says that Jesus distributes the fish. Jesus is distributing the bread, but there's no comment on whether the fish are actually used to feed people or not. It does say that Jesus multiplies and distributes the bread, though. And so I was thinking about the Muppets in this story and, like, what happened to the fish. And, of course, the correct answer is that New Zealand would have very quietly snuck up and stolen the fish so that he could throw them at people. Because New Zealand's character in the Muppets apparently really loves throwing fish at people. So I think that explains where the fish went. That, that tracks. I am just here to, you know, solve mysteries you didn't know were there in the first place. So. You know, you are one of the best at that <laughs> out of all of the people that I know. So thank you, mm, thank I you for serving that very, very important purpose. Yeah. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Emily Ewing and Kay Roloff. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It's cheaper than buying five loaves and two fish at almost any store. Mm-hmm. Or 12 bushel baskets. For that matter, absolutely. <laughs> also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets musical for this episode. As the ancient Christians said, Pox Bobiscum. <laughs>